This is Doc Vader, the most powerful clinician in the galaxy. You are listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. The force is moderately to severely strong with this one. Vader out. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hello, Boards Insiders. It's Patrick Beeman, your host. This is the Inside the Boards podcast. Today, we're going a little bit off the path. Um, I've got an an adaptation basically talking through an article that I wrote for Student Doctor Network back in 2017, which will be the teaching point of this show. Uh, but before that, I'm going to present to you a little section from our friend ZDog MD How to Suck Less as a Medical Student. It's a little blunt, but he makes some really good points. And if you do not listen to the incident report or follow ZDog, you should. ZDogMD.com. He's a true advocate of what he calls Health 3.0, and you should definitely read all about it. It is the sort of thing that, I mean, I kind of think we're trying to do MedEd or uh, Health Education 3.0 with ITB, with the whole point being a return to the primacy of human relationship and connection uh, within medicine and medical education, which is um, part of the paradigm of Health 3.0. So check that out. And right now, here's Z-Dog. Today, I did rounds at the hospital and new medical students, interns, residents, all that. And they all did presentations of their patients. And I noticed something remarkable. The students have very varied levels of competence in delivering presentations and information to other physicians or other healthcare providers. Now, why does this matter? Oh, you know, is it smoke and mirrors? It's just external stuff. No, it is the single most important thing that we do is communicate in medicine. If you can't give a concise, organized story about your patient, how the hell are you going to talk to your patients about their own health, the, the plan, what they need to do to get it together, how you're going to work with them if you can't do that with people who know medicine, all right? So here's the thing. I saw a variety of things, and here's what I saw that worked really well. Put the damn note down. Know the story of your patient and look your attending physician or your colleagues in the eye and say, such and such is 37, here's the story, heart failure, valve replacement on Coumadin because had some clots and so probably needs the Coumadin and that's the setting for what's going on. Now coming in with an abnormal INR, we don't know why in a difficult social situation. Okay, just in that, I have a picture. I also know that you care enough about that patient to know who they are because you're looking me in the eye and your notes are down, okay? Then start communicating and be concise. Just because it happened doesn't mean you have to tell us about it. We hear, we attendings here at Ethernet speeds, like T1 transmission, but a lot of medical students and nursing students transmit at like a 2200 baud modem, like, and we're like, 
So you will start to see that your clinical thinking actually parallels your presentation skills many, many times. Now, how do you even start to do this right? Okay, first of all, put down the damn computer and take some written notes. There's something about the hand-eye motor connection that creates memory. And this has been looked at a little bit. So if you actually write down the stuff about your patient, then later you can sit down on the computer and organize it into a thoughtful note. More ideas will come to you. Connections will come to you. But by writing it down, you will have it in your head in a way that is orally conveyable. Because in so many ways, medicine is an oral tradition. It's like the great tra religious traditions. Like these were handed on, these stories from time to time to time, Native American tradition. Giving a presentation on rounds is the same thing. It's like this story. And I'll tell you, I was not good at a lot of stuff in medical school that I had to get work on, get better, be diligent about. But the one thing I was really good at was knowing that story because you know what? Here's a secret. I cared about the patient's story. And when you care about that story and you kind of starting to learn the medicine, you can start to construct a presentation that not only gets the information across, but gets people riveted to the story, gets them thinking, gets them inspired. How are we going to help this person? So that's my one piece of advice is I see all different levels of that. And when it's bad, it is horrible. And all I'm thinking is, how would I ever let this person touch my mother or my children in a, in a, in a doctor patient relationship? No way. I don't even trust their thinking. They can't express what they're saying. So start to work on that. Even if you have to practice in front of a mirror, which by the way is cheating, but if you have to do it, do it. All right. That's my biggest advice to people starting their clinicals. And I don't know, that's all I got. I mean, there's some some decent advice, and it's absolutely true. You got to be able to uh, communicate within uh, uh, medical education to your colleagues. And I know they say it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness, but I don't know. I'm feeling in kind of a denunciatory mood, uh, if that's even a word. But uh, since I was a medical student, it seems like more and more. Uh, the things that would actually help your education as students, uh, the things that make med school a little more tolerable and which, frankly, make a better doctor or which are absolutely essential for a doctor to know how to do, are being taken away from uh, the purview of medical students. Case in point, uh, where I practice the medical students don't even get access to the medical record system during their OB rotation. So what's the consequence of that? Well, they're not going to know how to write a note when it comes time to be interns. And then intern years, it's just going to be, you know, like learning what people learned even five years ago in medical school, like how to document, how to communicate. And and so to, to Z-Dog's point, absolutely, like know your patient's story and let's think of ways to really stand up for the good of undergraduate medical education. Um, and, and through that, like, you've got to be an advocate for yourselves and at your schools. I mean, like, it's so hard for medical students to do anything cool in med school anymore. Like, I try to involve students in deliveries, but I don't know. So you've got to find the attendings and residents as best you can who are willing to take time to teach and present yourself as somebody 
um, who is part of the, the team and provides value to patients. So just a little tidbit of advice on OB. I don't even know if I should be saying this, but I often will see like nurses or staff uh, or even students themselves go into patients' uh, rooms when they're in labor and be like, hey, he's a, or she's a medical student. Can they watch your delivery? Um, well, I mean, what do you think someone's going to say? That sounds so weird, frankly. So what I encourage my students to do is go in there, confidence, say, hey, I'm John. I'm the medical student on the team today. Dr. Beeman just wanted me to come by and see if there's anything you needed. Or I'm the medical student on the floor today helping the team out. I just wanted to introduce myself and see if there's anything you need. That is a sort of, I guess, opt-out way of approaching this. But like, how else are you going to get experience? And of course, we always respect you know, a patient's wishes. Uh, but at, at, at the same time, when you're in a teaching institution as a patient, the default position, like it, it kind of is that you'll see trainees. And what people often don't realize is those trainees are or can be the ones who absolutely make a huge difference in your care and especially your experience as a patient. So before we get into the didactic portion, uh, I just wanted to call out this this article and observation from my mentor, Dr. Edmund Pellegrino. He was truly a, a pioneer in the field of medical humanities and medical ethics. So this is an article published in 1977, um, The Transactions of the American Clinical and Climatological Association and its medical schools as moral agents. I'll at least put like a link to the, the PubMed citation in the show notes here. As you probably know, I love philosophy and I've been getting a little more into it lately or getting back into it. As you learn medicine, as you learn to practice, don't forget that it is a lifelong process to also learn the why and the meaning of being a physician. Also, it helps you keep your eye on the prize and not get so beaten down by the minutiae and pain points that we all experience every day in the hospital or the classroom. So this section is obligations to students. The moral responsibility of a medical school to its major constituency, the students it purports to educate, would seem to be so obvious as to preclude discussion. Nevertheless, in this realm too, the ethical dimensions of faculty and administration have not been sufficiently, rigorously, or explicitly addressed. This was a main focus for attack on schools in the emotional diatribes of the late 60s. Relevance was the cry then, as dehumanization is the cry now. This is not the place to analyze the cultural and social anthropology of medical schools or faculty-student relationships. The nature of the moral questions, however, is illustrable by allusion to only one facet of this relationship, the quality of teaching. The shift in shibboleths from relevance to dehumanization must not obscure a perennial complaint among students, and this includes university students as well, the quality of teaching. 
A sophisticated ethical disquisition is not needed to apprehend the moral requirement of a medical school to provide quality in teaching unless we are willing to admit its irrelevance for student thought, behavior, and performance, or his present capacity to learn. The obviousness of this obligation is in no way correlated with the degree to which it is fulfilled. Poor preparation, poor delivery, riding personal research hobby horses, bad-mouthing other disciplines, failing to meet classes, relegating teaching to house staff, language barriers, needless repetition, sermonizing, the whole hoary litany of pedagogical perversities is too easy to recite. Their persistence is not so much a matter of failure to understand the principles of education as a failure in the primary moral obligation of teachers to students. As tuitions climb to 10000 per year or more, it's more like 35000 as tuition climbs to 10000 per year or more, the basic business ethics of getting one's money worth may prevail where loftier ideals of responsible pedagogy have not. Whether or not this becomes the case, the quality of teaching is unavoidably a corporate as well as an individual ethical obligation for everyone associated with a medical school. Poor teachers must be detected and their difficulties diagnosed. They must be rehabilitated, reassigned, or if that is not possible, removed. Research, stature, and productivity do not excuse poor performance in the classroom. This is not the same as saying that research activity is unimportant for good pedagogy. The point need not be labored further. The moral sensibilities of a medical school are revealed in its provisions for adequate teaching facilities, for student health and counseling, for assisting in the personal and emotional crises of student adaptation to death dying in the cadaver, and for student input in the evaluation of teaching and teachers. In this realm, student assessments have considerable, though not exclusive, authority. There will be a conflict even with these obvious obligations. The faculty has certain rights as well as students. Academic freedom, in its intellectual rather than its political sense, is to be respected. Yet, this principle can be invoked inappropriately to protect poor teaching from institutional surveillance. What are the limits of academic freedom, and how is it proportioned to the equally demanding obligation to provide quality teaching? As in responding to the obligations to society, it is the ready answer, the ideological stance, and the self-justifying position which must be distrusted. The moral agency of medical schools unavoidably propels them into moral conflict. Only genuinely sound and critical moral discourse can provide rationally justifiable resolutions. So just a quick excerpt, but that last point, genuinely sound and critical moral discourse, that's what we need to be a part of. That's kind of what we try to do in part here at ITB2 to address the obligations of medical schools and those charged with shepherding the whole enterprise of medical education through board exams, for instance. So I figured I'd offer that. Um, in one sense, it's like, oh man, this dude was writing in 1977, so not much has changed. But hopefully for those of you who might be on a shitty rotation with somebody who is basically ignoring you, or those of you whose procedural documentation and um, other abilities have been stripped because of the way hospitals um, have set things up, just be encouraged that you are not alone in having these complaints and having these frustrations. 
and that once you are in the position of shepherding the enterprise of medical education, either on a large scale or within your own personal purview of the students or other learners that surround you, that you will not be one of those crappy teachers who doesn't take that responsibility seriously. So now let's get into the didactic portion of today's show. Today, I want to present to you kind of a article commentary on something I wrote back in 2017 for Student Doctor Network. That article was Board Preparation, Training for a Marathon, Not a Sprint. So I'm just going to read through this uh, because it does capture the sort of things we try to do here at ITB in terms of breaking down practice questions to help train your thinking to approach them and learn the how of taking an exam within med school or beyond. So here we go. So the first key to success, and you hear me say this like all the time on the podcast, the first key to success on the boards is using practice questions to develop what I like to call your hunch reflex. So if you're a second year medical student, kind of sort of thinking about a certain test you'll have to take in like eight months-ish, and you haven't already begun using practice questions in your study, you should start now. And even if you're just halfway through first year, start incorporating this advice into your study plan. All right. What is the advice? No surprises. Questions, questions, questions. What question bank should I use? Well, I mean, there are a number of newer and older ones. They all offer multiple choice practice questions or MCQs, which can be integrated easily into your coursework. All told, the source material doesn't really matter so much as doing tons of board-style practice questions. So you can train your mind to think in the way that's required for success on the boards. So the point is, do something now. Don't make the mistake I did as a medical student and wait to incorporate this study strategy into your board preparation long game. I didn't really discover practice questions until later in second year of med school, which, you know, admittedly was like eh, a decade ago, and I really wish I'd used them sooner uh, because both MCQs and then what I did writing practice board style questions made me so much more efficient in study. It definitely made me more confident walking into my USMLE and shelf exams, and I think also decreased my test anxiety to a certain degree. Plus, it helped inspire me to start this podcast and Inside the Boards, so uh, win-win all around. Uh, So if you've been using practice questions as part of your own study plan, then you will be training your hunch reflex. When I wrote board-style MCQs, it made me feel like I knew what questions were going to be on the test before I even sat for the exam. And to a certain extent, that is almost true, because as you will see from doing many, many, many questions, there's only a handful of ways to ask an examinee about certain concepts. But luckily, you don't have to get a job writing these to develop this confidence and reap all the benefits. That's what we're trying to do with ITB. We're trying to teach you what makes a good question, what makes a bad question. You can discern why certain things will never show up on the boards because the only way to formulate a question about them is to write one that is just bad. It doesn't meet the high standards, the NBME, 
or NBOME, require for MCQs used on the actual examinations. So if you learn to recognize the factors that contribute to the goodness or badness of a question, it can help you guide your study and assist you in constructing a mental map, both of topics that will likely show up and how those topics will be tested on the exam. So acquiring some skills in this area, you can use it repeatedly throughout your medical career, but also just to encourage and reassure you, step one is kind of like the peak of a mountain, in my opinion, and I think the general consensus is the board exams you take do get a little bit easier or more manageable the more you take them. Um, I mean, that is not true across the board, um, pardon the pun, uh, but but still, at least for those out there who are <laughs> uh, about to take um, or, or will be taking uh, step one as their first board exam um, and you're freaking out, just know that for most people, that's the most you'll ever have to freak out about an exam. So let me provide an example here. Let's say you read the following stem. A 13-year-old male presents for evaluation of gait abnormalities and weakness. His past medical history is unremarkable. His family history is significant for a maternal uncle who has an unknown disease that made him wheelchair-dependent as a child. Vital signs are within normal limits. Physical examination is significant for distal limb weakness, impaired proprioception, and pes cavus deformity. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So let's break it down. You've got a 13-year-old kid who's got weakness and some problems walking, no real medical history, but family history is significant for a maternal uncle with an unknown disease. Uh, that made him wheelchair-dependent as a child. Physical exam, uh, distal limb weakness, impaired proprioception, and pes cavus deformity. All right, so those are the kind of important highlights for this particular vignette. And to return to the lead-in, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? All right, so here are the answer choices. A, Becker muscular dystrophy. B, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. C, hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy, or D, talipus equinovarus. So the answer for this one is choice C, hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy. So this is commonly known as Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, or CMT. This is one of the frustrating things about the boards, uh, I think, and, and medical education in general, is uh, the review books and um, lexicon, the vocabulary of medical education is often uh, not in sync with the most current terms that are used in clinical practice. So if you didn't know that Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, uh, CMT, was a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy, which is a very descriptive term and like i mean for this vignette it almost seems like cheating because what's described in the vignette uh it sounds like a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy the family history mentions a maternal uncle with a disease and then on physical exam kids got distal limb weakness and impaired proprioception so 
at any rate. So what's important here is that the CMT, uh, see, I fell back into it, but I'm going to do that anyways, because it's easier to say than hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy. This disease is the most common inherited neurologic disorder. The classic findings are distal muscle weakness, uh, which presents usually with uh, or initially with foot drop, pes cavus deformity, which is like when someone has really high arches, and you see absent deep tendon reflexes and impaired proprioception. CMT is actually a syndrome, you know, meaning that there's a cl- common clinical picture with a multitude of different causes that lead to the same uh, sort of clinical picture. So with CMT, there is at least like 30 genetic causes, some with X-linked recessive, others with autosomal dominant, others with an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern, and it gets classified into multiple subtypes that are determined by the inheritance pattern, underlying pathophys, particular neurons, affected. So it's very complex. There are demyelinating types. It's it's just way messy. So that being said, pretend you're in charge of the boards. If you were going to include a Charcot-Marie tooth disease question on a test meant for a general medical license, how would you write it? What material would you put in the stem? And if you wanted to see if someone could recognize this, how would you frame the interrogatory? These are the sorts of questions you need to continually ask yourself as you study because it will help you build that framework for how uh, material that you learn might be tested. So based on the little information about CMT, which I mentioned, do you think it's likely that you're going to get one of these questions with interrogatories like this? For instance, the most likely inheritance pattern for this patient's disease is A, autosomal dominant, B, autosomal recessive, C, multifactorial, or D, X-linked recessive. Or what about this one? You're asked, this patient's symptoms are most likely caused by A, a defective muscle protein, B, apoptosis, C, autoimmune demyelination, D, axonal degeneration, or E, Schwann cell degeneration. So think about this. These questions are not likely with reference to Charcot-Marie tooth disease. These interrogatory um, answer choice uh, uh, combos may be perfect for a different type of question, uh, but why, why not for CMT? Consider how low yield it would be to require medical students to know the answer to things like this. Now, I know what you're saying, like, it seems like that with half the questions that I'm expected to know. But at the same time, it is a totally valid point. There are things that I have learned in residency and subsequently as an attending that are so specific and arcane to obstetrics and gynecology You can't even Google them. You can't even find them in up-to-date. It's part of the experience, the the development of clinical reasoning that occurs as, as you go through training. And the boards, like I say often, try to make the gray world of clinical medicine black and white. 
Anyway, these sorts of um, questions uh, would be something perhaps important for a neurology resident, but uh, CMT is too variegated in its presentation to get into all the types and subtypes for a general medical licensing examination. And you might say, like, holy crap, this or that subject is so esoteric that there's no way I'm going to have to learn about this, or I'll I'll be expected to answer a question on this. You've got to do a lot of questions to know those things that are so low yield, it would be ridiculous to ask a medical student to know. And those are the things you learn um, to just ignore as you're studying review books and whatnot, versus those things that feel arcane and abstruse, but it seems like they always expect people to know in the practice questions or on exams, which those are probably usually asked more to test your clinical reasoning or as illustrative of specific types of clinical knowledge you need to know, but that's an issue for another day. But with CMT, there's just like too many etiologies, too many genes, too many sundry clinical presentations. Like I said, the above interrogatories and answer choice combos might be appropriate for other genes or excuse me, other diseases like a defective muscle protein dystrophin causes Becker muscular dystrophy and its complete absence causes Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And the same goes for questions related to inheritance. Dystrophin is encoded on the X chromosome. So asking about these things in relation to Duchenne or Becker muscular dystrophy makes some sense. All in all, certain diseases lend themselves to certain questions. So if you're studying something like CMT, you wouldn't want to waste your time learning about its inheritance, characteristic findings on muscle biopsy, pathophysiology, etc. The most return you're going to get on your study investment because remember, there's a law of diminishing returns when it comes to studying, is to remember only the highlights that lend themselves to being the correct answer to a high-quality question. Plus, there is also that principle of, holy shit, this is really complicated, and my brain doesn't work like this, so I'm going to know other stuff like really, really well, and this other entity, I'm just kind of going to know the basics and not freak out that I don't understand it. So for me, that's the coagulation cascade. It didn't matter how much I studied that. I could not keep it all straight. For some reason, I memorized the complement cascade pathway because of a very vivid memory in a second year lecture. But when it came to coagulation cascade and and or when, honestly, when it comes to bleeding diatheses, even though I'm in OBGYN and, um, you know, we face certain diseases like von Willebrand's uh, disease, uh, I'm not going to lie. Whenever I have uh, to think about these things in relation to uh, patients or um, in prep for, uh, you know, exams related to my specialty, I'm looking it up on up-to-date or um, refreshing my memory with like an ACOG uh, practice bulletin just because it's not something that sticks for me. Um, and, and you'll find, you got to know yourself. You'll find there are things like that for you too. Don't sweat it. Uh, so let's put this all together. 
how might CMT show up on a board exam? Perhaps there'd be a vignette about nonspecific muscle weakness with no classic differentiating factors that would make you choose Becker or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And then they'd also have a vague but positive family history that asks which diagnosis is most likely. And this would test your knowledge of Charcot-Marie tooth disease as the most common inherited neurologic disorder. And this is kind of a schema that board exam question writers can use to test epidemiologic facts because if you notice, board-style MCQs must have a clinical vignette. You aren't going to see a a standalone question like, the most common cause of X disease is fill-in-the-blank. Similarly, you could conceive of the board's people presenting a vignette that states a patient is diagnosed with CMT and asks the examinee which findings most likely on physical exam, with a list of physical findings which include pes cavus deformity. Or maybe like an examination item that describes only some of the features of Charcot-Marie tooth disease, but shows a picture of pes cavus deformity and asks which diagnosis is most likely. At the same time, you know that certain related diseases, like the ones that are reasonable in a differential diagnosis uh, for CMT, they're going to influence the question writers. So you need to know what differentiates it from those similar presentations and findings. And this is really where your mind needs to be going all the time when trying to compare and, and remember the differences between entities that have a lot of overlapping principles or features, uh, whatever. So what diseases are similar? What makes CMT stand out? These are the questions you need to ask. So for board success, you have to really pay attention to the unique aspects of diseases with overlapping presentations. Uh, The locus of good MCQ construction is found here. It's where question writers draw their material. And It's where you should focus your study. And I'm not saying like that's all you should study or know, like the differences between things. Uh, But my point is that what you should know in particular for board exam preparation, just to get back to the fact that real life medicine is much messier than what can be placed into a paragraph long clinical vignette. So, you know, for a condition like CMT, based on what we discussed before, they're not likely to ask about a treatment because there really isn't a single modality or drug that treats it. Not like azithromycin treats chlamydia or the combo of ceftriaxone and azithromycin treats gonorrhea. So you don't want to waste your time learning or thinking about the treatment for this CMT disease. So you want to do well on your boards. My advice, start using practice questions as part of your study as early as possible during your first year. Pay attention to how practice questions for a given topic are constructed by writers, and then use those insights to seize upon the highest yield material likely to be tested. It's always going to be a judgment call to decide you know, what's likely to be tested versus what isn't. But making judgments about the relevance or irrelevance of information is is basically what clinical judgment and reasoning and being a doctor is all about. And it's half the battle when it comes to thinking like a question writer. As always, thanks for listening. 
All right, thanks to Better Days for letting us use the track Tired Bones, Weak Minds off their 2018 album, What You Did To Me. So you can find Better Days wherever you listen to music. <laughs> 